The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. President Donald Trump said that he had a, quote, very good conversation with President Xi Jinping of China that signaled progress in the nation's trade dispute. Now, this came just hours before federal prosecutors unsealed charges against the Chinese technology firm for allegedly stealing trade secrets. Here to tell us more about the U.S.-China trade relationship is Mike McDonough, chief economist for financial products for Bloomberg LP, and he joins us here in studio. Mike, what can you tell us about the information so far regarding U.S.-China trade negotiations? Well, we don't have a lot of information as it relates to this new development, but um, the timing is interesting, uh, you have to say, right? Uh, when, you know, when, when the economy is growing strongly, when equity markets are going up, uh, it's kind of easy to be more hawkish on China, right? Because, you know, things are going well, why not, you know? Um, then when, you know, you start seeing big sell-off in the market. There's some concern about what could happen with this U.S.-China relation. You have a midterm election. Um, you know, I, I think that that probably has something to do with the timing. In other words, President Trump wanted to give some kind of jolt to markets, to stock markets ahead of the election by indicating there could let's, be a deal. But not, yeah, yeah, let's take a big step back. Let's take a step back. Let's Go take ahead. a big step back Please. from it, right? You have to say one thing that the Trump administration has done a really good job of is bringing animal spirits back into the market. That is people becoming blindly optimistic about the future, willing to invest in their companies, you know, grow companies, and which is great for the economy. And that's been happening. And you, you could track that really by the spread between survey-based data and hard economic data. Survey-based data, economic data, confidence numbers, business confidence, has been off the charts since President Trump has been elected. And I think the whole Trump rally was really predicated on the fact that there was an expectation for gradual Fed tightening, tax reform, deregulation, and the belief that there'd be no major disruption in international trade. Uh, so you go back to Q1, suddenly you have a tariff on washing machines. So that whole premise that there's going to be no actual disruption in international trade got shaken. And you saw the market sell off earlier this year. But then what we saw, we saw uh, a deal with the EU that wasn't really a win. It wasn't really a deal. It was a uh, one one thousandth of what would have been agreed upon with TTIP, which was a trade deal, an investment deal already in the works. But that made people say, OK, easy win there. This we were maybe a right originally. Then you had to deal with NAFTA, with Mexico, and that was a fraction of what um, TPP would have been. So people said we're over worrying about this, and you saw markets continue to go up. But then people started realizing, wait a second, 
It's not the same with China. And, and part of the reason is if you survey most Americans, the majority would say there's something wrong with our trade relationship with China. They might not be able to put their finger on it. Well, and in fairness, on both sides of the aisle, people agree on that, that yeah. there have been some some profound imbalances there. Yeah, so that, that has helped give uh, President the administration some runway to run with the idea, uh, some of their ideas. Now, I don't think the majority of the population would agree with how President Trump is handling it, but they most agree that something's wrong. Now, all of a sudden, though, people are realizing oh, this is a lot more complicated than NAFTA. There probably won't be this quick, easy win. And how far could this escalate? Most people, I think, have this idea that once you tariff all imports on both sides, that's as far as it could go. Well, that's not necessarily the case, right? We've already seen some issues bubbling up in the South China Sea, rhetoric from um, uh, Vice President Pence. Uh, so people are realizing this could go further. Uh, and at some point right now, China's been very reactive. At some point, they could become more proactive. Um, the issue we had, the U.S. had with ZT, a Chinese company, we were going to stop allowing them to buy any U.S. inputs. Uh, that could have potentially bankrupt a ch major Chinese tech company. The thing is, if you flip it over and let's say President Xi had issues with some U.S. companies, he has a lot more firepower than President Trump has uh, on going after these companies. So there's a lot of ways this could escalate in ways that would be really bad. And I think the market is now kind of getting a sense of that. And those animal spirits are retracting a little or going back into hibernation at least a little bit. And you saw some of that evidence maybe in the GDP data. Mike, uh, just quickly, when I think of China and I try to research China perspective, I go to China Daily just to see what the Chinese perspective is. There is nothing except a small link to anything having to do with President Xi Jinping and President Donald Trump discussing trade on this phone call. The big issue is aid to private businesses. Does China need a trade deal? Well, China certainly doesn't want to have to deal with the headwinds of a trade war while it's, you know, it's it's the leveraging agenda. We talked about this the other day, had a little bit more negative effect on growth than people had been anticipating. And it especially hit the private sector hard because they were trying to stamp out the shadow banking sector, which right. they benefited the most. So uh, they don't want the double whammy of having to deal with a trade war and the domestic factor. So, yeah, I mean, I think they do need a trade deal. Mike McDonough. Always a pleasure. Your insights are very valuable. We really appreciate you being here. Mike McDonough, Chief Economist for Financial Products for Bloomberg LP, talking about uh, President Trump's wish for a draft of a potential deal with China. This comes ahead of the midterm elections, did cause a pop in markets, although it is sort of different from some of the rhetoric that we have heard from him of late. So perhaps that is what markets uh, were responding to. The topic is globalization and global growth, as well as populism. Earlier today, we heard from Matt Forrester, the chief investment officer of BNY Mellon's Lockwood Advisors, and he says the biggest investor worry is a global slowdown. Here to tell us about some of the forces that may be affecting the global economy is Barry Eichengreen. He is an economist, he is a historian, and a professor of economics and political science at the University of California, Berkeley, and he joins us appropriately from Athens, Greece, whose citizens have, of course, endured economic insecurity as well as a political system which many call unresponsive. His latest book is entitled The Populist Temptation, Economic Grievance and Political Reaction in the Modern 
era. Professor Eichen Green, thank you very much for being with us. Do you believe that we are at a historical turning point that cannot be changed, or are there still individual forces which can, in a sense, reclaim the promise of globalization? I think the um, existing global system, global supply chains, the global division of labor exist for good reasons and are deeply entrenched. So big corporations understand the advantages of globalization. Uh, informed leaders understand the advantages as well. And quite simply, uh, beating back the forces of populism, uh, nationalist populism on the right, anti-elite populism on the left, requires uh, helping those who can't help themselves who are being displaced by globalization. The fundamental problem is that we don't do trade adjustment assistance in the United States. We don't do the right kind of education and training. In principle, uh, those are solutions we could adopt. Professor Eichengreen, one reason why we were sort of drawn to this question is because Richard Jones of Bloomberg wrote a piece where he said that populism is the biggest threat to markets. And certainly he is not alone in feeling that we are watching the beginnings of a complete upheaval of our sense of the global economy. Do you agree? We're certainly seeing that kind of up upheaval in the United States with President Trump's trade wars and um, aggressive rhetoric toward China. Um, I'm not sure how broadly based globally this reaction is. If you spend time in Asia, uh, you learn pretty quickly that not only China and Japan, but all the Southeast Asian economies are still deeply committed to globalization, and they're not turning away from it, despite all the noise in Italy over nationalism and, and despite Brexit, I think there is also deep in a, and, and abiding support for uh, an integrated global economy in, in Europe. We're going to have to see now what happens in Brazil. The story is always changing. But uh, I think it's important not to overgeneralize from the peculiar things happening at the moment in the U.S., Professor Eichengreen, do you believe that the power of political reform is likely to change the outcome as you describe it? In, in the United States, I think political reform could uh, create an environment where people think that their government is being more responsive and that it's managing globalization in a way that benefits everyone and not only the elites, but if you ask me what kind of political reform are we talking about, then it becomes harder. Campaign finance reform, uh, reform uh, of how congressional district lines yeah. are drawn. In California, we outsource that to an independent commission. Reform the electoral college, those would be major reforms, to put it mildly. You know, Barry, I have to wonder, did we get globalization wrong? I mean, is this a legitimate rejection of certain aspects of globalization uh, that we're seeing in the movements that are sweeping the globe right now? I think that we uh, forgot some basic um, lessons about globalization. We got overly caught up, and I include the uh, professional economists and academics 
uh, among those who committed the mistake. Uh, I don't let myself off the hook. Uh, globalization, international trade doesn't automatically raise all boats. It doesn't benefit everyone equally. It benefits some absolutely, and there are others who are who lose. And the fact that we forgot that last point and that we didn't put in place education, training, place-based policies that would help to compensate the losers or put them in a position where they would also benefit from globalization. We forgot that fact, and we're now seeing the consequences. Do those consequences also express themselves in things such as status, anxiety, and questions of identity? Uh, I, I, I think all of these things are um, uh, wrapped up together. So um, the, the political landscape in the U.S. at the moment is very, very complicated, as everyone knows. But some of the same people who feel left behind by globalization are, um, are, are, are similarly uh, feeling that uh, they are being left behind in terms of identity politics and uh, um, their status is being threatened by immigrant groups and others. Well, I guess that I just want to quickly get from you a sense of do you think that populism could actually be beneficial that the sort of wave just push to not forget people have been left behind could actually make uh, the economy globally stronger? Well, if by pop- populism you mean uh, political movements and leaders with uh, authoritarian tendencies, then I would say no. If you mean uh, political leaders who make uh, policy on the basis of, of disinformation, I would say no as well. But um, disenfranchised people uh, are rightly unhappy by their disenfranchisement, so to the extent that they become part of the political uh, represented and and political mainstream again, that can only be a good thing. Barry Eichengreen, we'll let you go get your phone. Barry Eichengreen is economic historian, professor of economics and political science at the University of California, Berkeley. Joining us from Athens, Greece, we really appreciate you taking the time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum, powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Apple shares plunging today, the most since April 2016, down nearly 6% after reporting weaker-than-expected forecasts for holiday sales of iPhones, and also removing detailed information about the number of iPhones that they sell each quarter going forward. Joining us now, Michael Scanlon, Portfolio Manager at Manulife Asset Management in Boston. Michael, what was your reaction to this report, and do you think that the market response right now is proportionate? disproportionate or not enough? Sure. So I, the results last night, pretty strong, um, you know, certainly within the range of general expectations that the street was looking for. Uh, obviously, the biggest surprise that most people are focused on is this movement that they're going to no longer disclose the unit sales uh, of their individual products, which certainly could introduce more volatility to the results going forward. So why do you think they did this? Um 
you know, I'm not really sure. I think when when you think about it longer term, I guess their their point of argument would be that focusing on how many units of a device they're selling every given 90 days is less important than the longer term trajectory of the business. But again, when you're modeling these companies on a quarterly basis, you know, those are certainly important inputs. Um, you know, a pessimist would tell you that, you know, the expectations are that iPhone units are going to slow further. Uh, and that they don't want to have that as a highlighted number. Um, so it's definitely going to introduce more volatility to results going forward. You own Apple shares, right, in your portfolios? Yeah, within the John Hancock Balance Fund, we've been a long-term holder of the, the stock. Does this quarterly report make you less willing to add to your uh, allocation currently? Well, it's a position that we've held for a long time. Um, I think when you look at the results, really for us, the, the big thing that we always come back to is just the total return profile of the stock. You look at last year with the amount of cash that they kicked off, they bought back $72 billion of stock. The share count was down over 6% year over year. And going forward, they're committed to bringing that net cash balance down to zero. So, you know, I think you can get a very high single-digit return just from the capital return on the stock, buying back about 6% and a point and a half on the dividend. Um, and then more modest operating income growth going forward. But, uh, you know, when you look at that versus expectations for the market on a total return basis, it's still pretty attractive. Okay. Well, I mean, um, all right, let's move on to the information that they have reported or will report. They've got a new product category, right? This category, wearables, home, and accessories. They produced record quarter there, $4.2 billion. What's your outlook for how fast that unit can grow? You know, each incremental device, in addition to just the, the pure revenue number of it, is increasingly important, right? Because we always talk about Apple with getting people into this ecosystem and, you know, getting a person to buy that first device and then the second device is incrementally more important. When you think about some of those other devices and, you know, you think about the watch, I mean, that's becoming uh, more and more of a focal point as they've added to sort of the healthcare element of it. And, you know, it, it, there's obviously a lot of talk with this uh, echocardiogram functionality that they'll have within there. So all these incremental devices just add to the bull case for Apple. And when you think about the refresh rates and the customer loyalty levels that they experience, you know, when you look at the company's revenue base and the multiple versus the S&P, it doesn't seem to reflect just how loyal their customers are. Will Apple ultimately be a software company and a services company and not a hardware company at its heart? Uh, you know, they're certainly focused on the services today, right? And they have that goal of doubling the services revenue um, to by 2020, and it looks like they're going to get there probably next year, so about a full year ahead of expectations. Um, you know, the, the, there's certainly slowed units in terms of the iPhone units that are sold, but you never know what they're working on, right? There's been a lot of speculation over the years, whether it's a TV or a car. You never know what that next device might be. Um, but right now, there is a lot of focuses on focus on that service side of the business. What is your thought about the Apple Watch? And you believe that that will be a big moneymaker for them? Well, right now, it's not a huge moneymaker for them. I, I think longer term, the opportunity there is to, um, you know, along the lines of what they've been doing with the heart monitoring and now this fall monitoring, uh, as well. You know, if they're able to to move closer in relationships with insurance companies. Uh, and, you know, have subsidized pricing for those units to get more of them actually out there in circulation, then it could start to be a big driver for them going forward. But today, it, it's just not a uh, it's not as big of a focal point for investors as things like the iPhone units or iPhone ASPs are. 
So Apple shares are seeing their biggest decline, at least in the initial hour of trading since 2016. Is this a buying opportunity? Well, when you look at the stock, I mean, you know Apple's going to be out there buying the shares. Uh, again, they've committed to getting that uh, $135 billion a share of $135 billion of cash, or about 28 bucks a share, down to a net zero. Uh, so they're going to be buying back an extraordinary amount of shares. I'm not surprised to see the stock weak on the open here. Uh, and again, that's just reflective of um, a little bit softer guide on the top line for next quarter uh, and this new call it volatility that could be introduced to the results as, as they're no longer going to disclose units. Michael Scanlon, thank you very much for spending time with us. Michael Scanlon is Portfolio Manager for Manulife Asset Management. They're based in Boston. The topic, of course, Apple and the shares of Apple right now, as Lisa was saying, down more than 6%. Apple saying that they are no longer going to report unit sales of iPhones. Joe Mysack, the editor for the Bloomberg Brief on Municipals, joins us now in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Joe Mysack, four days, one hour, 40 minutes to the midterm elections. Are municipal bond markets ready for the outcome of those elections? Well, sure. Plus, we have the bond elections, Pim. Come on. Well, that's what I'm asking More than about. More is... $76 billion in municipal bonds on ballots which is you know, not the record for the general election. That's a little over $80 billion, but it's still pretty good. And it shows you that municipalities are really serious about getting back to work. Okay, so just get a little bit more specific here. So basically, municipalities are saying to voters, please sign off on these projects and say that you'll pay for them, that you'll be willing to uh, fund the assessments that come along with them, uh, and then we'll go ahead and make improvements. Can you give us a sense of what some of these projects are and where they are? Okay, in, in Colorado, for example, uh, they have a couple of transportation, big roadway issues. But I was struck, when I took a look at the list from uh, IPRIO, the guys who put it together, how many deals and how much borrowing is for schools? Uh, so much is for school construction, school renovation, pools, uh, athletic facilities, so much for children's hospitals, high schools. Uh, that's really the, the, the you know, and that that's usually what we see too. Schools. That's what people are spending money on, and that's what people are there. What governments are asking people to spend money on. It's fabulous. And the states where we're seeing most of this potential issuance: California, Texas, California, Colorado, Texas. You know. But let's step back here just a bit because we talk about $76 billion and, of course, it never all comes to market the year after that. It takes municipalities and states years to go through their authorized but unissued uh, amounts. Uh, so, you know, it's not as though, oh, yeah, we're going to see this big bump in volume next year. We'll probably see a big bump in volume anyway because we're at, what, about probably wind up the year a little over $300 billion, $325 billion. Maybe next year we'll see... Wouldn't be surprised. Three seventy-five billion, four hundred maybe. Um, so, so why why now? Why are we seeing so many uh, so many projects like this being floated now? Uh, you know, there's a boom going on out there. Although you may not know it, this has been our theme. I want to say for the last 
two years where so many municipalities are putting, you know, they're going after it with hammer and tongs, either economic development projects or roadways or bridges or sewers or sidewalks. Their new issuance is up this year. The thing that we saw take a hit out of the market is when Congress did away with advance refundings. Otherwise, municipalities are, after you know the longest time of being uh, down because of the financial crisis, they're really back to it and building stuff. So I think at one point earlier this year, new issue volume, solely new money being raised, uh, was up something like 20%, which is astounding in the muni market. Is this because states are confident about their tax collections and that's connected to the job market? I would I would say so, sure. They're more they're more uh, buoyant, upbeat about uh, the state of affairs. And you know, it's funny, back in the seventies, for example, you remember Pim. I do indeed, Joe. The uh, the electorate was not very approving of bond issues and so many of them went down. But for the last, I want to say, uh, 20 years, we've seen the electorate in a much more approving uh, uh, attitude toward bond issues. So I wouldn't be surprised if on Tuesday we see the approval ratio on these bond issues more than 90%. Just real quick, I'd love to get your thoughts on the health care bill coming due for New York City, considering the fact that it hits pretty close to home. Oh, the other post-employment benefits story by Martin Braun. Mm. Well, you know, these other post-employment benefits, you don't, you pay for them over time. And so many municipalities, just like New York City, don't really put aside a lot of money for them. They just know they're going to, uh, you know, as the bills come in, that's when you pay them. Some municipalities are starting to, uh, uh, you know, reserve and set aside lots of money for these things. But other post-employment benefits, it's one of those... It's almost like a shadow number. You know? Just to give a little more color to that, New York City needs to end up or potentially could pay uh, health costs for its retired workers of $103 billion, which is an increase of $40 billion over a decade. And how much is it set aside for that bill? $5 billion. So that shortfall needs to get bridged at some point uh, and could potentially be a problem. Well, you know, New York City has such a, it's such a robust economy and such a such a, uh, a strong tax base. Uh, you know, me, I tend not to get too excited about the OPEP right. costs, but that's me. Well, Joe Mysack, it's just you, but we really appreciate your ideas. Joe Mysack is the editor for the Bloomberg Brief to focused on municipals and has been in this market for decades. So we actually do really value uh, his views on all of these things. Uh, we really appreciate you being with us. Jump to conclusions just to get exercise? Uh, nice. I'm Lisa Bromwitz, along with my co-host and colleague, Pim Fox, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz one Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio.